Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This one is uh, part 21 of a series on both body and soul, wholeness. Uh, it's called Lies the Sexual Revolution Told You and Your Parents. Um, this is also part of a series called Why I'm Catholic, part 21. This one's getting really long. Uh, it's, it's a follow-up to the last episode, so I hope you listen to that one. But well, Let's get started. The wool has been pulled over our eyes for about 70 years now, or maybe 500 years, uh, where we think we have liberated women, but really we have walked into a trap. And I'm not talking about women's sports or women having careers traditionally, traditionally held by men here. I'm talking about the real things that separate men from women and unite men and women. Men have walked into the trap as well. We've all walked into the trap. Uh, each into our own separate trap, claiming freedom while the snare tightens around us in our our little solitary cages of liberty. Yes, um, there's a well-known trap called the two-income trap. That's a whole other topic where everyone needs two incomes to survive today. But there's a worse trap called the gaping maw of the underworld, better known as hell. The trap is that we think we can hammer morality into any shape we like, but we can't. The trap is that we think motherhood and fatherhood are not particularly important and that men can be women and women can be men, but they can't. Some things are not changeable. Unlike balancing a wheel, the more we try to hammer a wheel into the shape we'd like, the more unbalanced the wheel becomes. The more you hammer, the worse it gets, and the whole wheel eventually throws the bearing and destroys the machine. We've seen this movie before, and Catholics are always the jerks that stand athwart certain truth claims made by voices in the culture. But Catholics are only jerks in this case because they must teach what was handed down. It's either abandon the faith and bow to the golden statue, or set your face like flint against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and continue to preach what Christ and the apostles taught. What is a sin has been defined since before Jesus taught the apostles, and then Jesus clarified and refined it. It cannot be changed. When people get angry at the church, it's solely because the church repeats what Jesus said and what the apostles taught. This is why the apostolic church is the one with authority, which really makes people bristle. But the fact is this, morality cannot be legislated, it cannot be papered over, it cannot be coerced and it cannot be softened to fit the mood of middle schoolers no matter what kind of emotional hostages they try to take. What is sin and what is not sin is not up for debate. There are cardinals in the Catholic Church today, cardinals, who do not understand this and they certainly do not understand Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 to 19 that we were talking about in the last episode. But the teaching of the apostles is as timeless as God in heaven. Our own consciences can inform us that the natural law is right if we could only sit in a room quietly and listen to that small voice without reaching and scrolling on our phone. Our smartphones today make us less wise than ancient people who were more likely to understand or to under, understood their need for a savior far better than we do because they understood suffering, and they knew what Jesus' redemption meant for their bodies and souls. Americans today don't like this idea of rules set in stone, such as commandments, which is why we continually try to interpret the Bible on a personal basis, which twists 
all into destruction. Personal interpretation of the Bible is really how the devil recrafts the bad sale made at the beginning of human history. And he, he now infects our age we live in, this messianic age that we're living in now. The devil's already lost the war, but he can win some battles along the way and take souls. And he does this by twisting this morality and renaming sins as holy things. There's a book called Twisted into Destruction. Here's a quote. Uh, Throughout American history, from supporting slavery to selling consumerism to pushing the various evils of the sexual revolution, sola scriptura has been used to give sin a divine mandate and thereby entrench it ever more securely in the culture. The Catholic Church, on the other hand, provides a solid foundation for doctrine and morality and has stood strong in the face of each attack. Without a doubt, that was from the book, now back to back to mind. Uh, without a doubt, men have failed women before 70 years ago. But because of that failure that started in the 1960s with the lies of the sexual revolution, men have failed women even worse by allowing the current mania to thrash about so wildly. I realize that sin has been around since the fall in the garden, but the 60s gave it a boost, like a five-hour energy drink that lasted nearly a century now. Uh, what's funny is that having received this unbridled and bursting sense of liberty, depression in people has hit an all-time high. Depression. So liberty should lead to joy and freedom, you would think, if, if it's the right kind. Obviously, it's not if everyone's depressed. So how can that be? I say it's funny, but it's not. It's sad because we are sad. The whole nation, you meet people constantly who are in this bad state. We are reliving these garden stories over and over. When Eve took the fruit, men followed, Adam followed, and both both Adam and Eve ended up sad as they were cast out of the garden, and they were, ended up keeping God's image but losing his likeness. For a good read on the fallout from the sexual revolution and the false promises, there's a book called Adam and Eve After the Pill, which I link to here in this in this text. Um, The initial lie from the devil led to a bad relationship between the man and the woman. And the lie started with a false sense of food security, interestingly, leading to curiosity for knowledge, working against trust in the creator, all of which preceded the sexual fall and made the people believe that they no longer needed God or each other. I'll have much more on this in an upcoming series on food and sex, everyone's favorite things. Since the fall, we just can't learn. Men so often refuse to love women properly, uh, and the mess begins all over. The, the enmity between man and woman repeats, and it, it only is combated by humility and submission of husband and wife to each other. Daily. Daily submission. The backlash against toxic masculinity that's happening today is appropriate because the cartoonish and ignorant version of manliness that marketing department departments preached to men was an absurdity, and it it was the least biblical idea in history. Your truck does not make you a man. Trucks, sports, money, and sex do not make a man manly. A man driving a truck with a lift kit doesn't look manly. Sorry, Luke Bryan. He is just wearing a giant fig leaf. There was even a joke um, that the bigger the truck you had, the smaller your penis you must you, you must have um, for a while going around. It's probably still going around. Um, and a man who kowtows on the on the flip side of this, a man who kowtows and removes himself from all resp- responsibility to defer to women 
is frankly pathetic. Uh, healthy masculinity buys a truck if he needs to haul stuff around. Healthy masculinity doesn't buy extra horsepower just to bark his tires at a stoplight. He buys extra horsepower because his job is pulling heavy things. Now, material things, when presented as necessities to manliness, it makes man men into buffoons. And I'll tell you, do you know what actually makes a man manly? And this will come as a shock because it's the same thing that can make a woman womanly. Acting like Jesus makes a man. Imitating Christ is how you become a father and act like a father. It's how you act like a son. It's how you act like a brother, a nephew, a cousin, or a friend. Likewise, imitating Christ is how you become a better mother, daughter, sister, niece, cousin, or a friend. Dying to self makes a man manly. Dying to self makes a woman womanly. There is right masculinity, and Jesus exemplified it. He lives it. He did not take a wife, but he shows us how to live whether we are single or married, man or woman, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. And although he did not marry, he made it utterly plain that having a wife, one wife, through all the hard times makes a man masculine. Gathering notches on your truck bed can only make a man into a fool and ultimately an enemy of God. But the backlash against the absurd form of macho manliness has swung the pendulum into what girls today are told is liberation, where they are essentially being taught to act like men and want the things that men have traditionally wanted. I have not seen any ads teaching girls to desire a family and a loving husband, but I have seen many, many ads holding up sports, glory, money, career, and sex as the highest goods. Not motherhood, not a, not a family, not a loving husband and a great relationship that will satisfy you. The funny thing is that many boys are now realizing that sports glory and money will not bring happiness and are pulling away from those pursuits. And the false idols are showing their sandy bottoms. They're washing away and they will continue to erode over the next generation. However, in telling girls they can be men, we declare that they have been empowered. But have they? Mocking motherhood and marriage has not been empowering. And since women cannot actually be men, but can imitate them, they have shunned their nature for man's nature. And once again, due to this disorder, which I blame men, frankly, um, God will allow us to be taught by our disorder, by our own choice. So when the formless void that God created is and filled is not filled in the way he designed, disorder erupts. The wheel is thrown out of balance. But we have done more than mock motherhood and the family unit. We've spent the last 40 years mocking fatherhood, um, pretty much every sitcom, but especially Homer Simpson leading the charge. As the latest fad is to replace fatherhood with the government, the state, we'll learn that social workers make for an even worse husband than Homer, Homer Simpson does in the long run. The Soviet Union discovered this, and the fallout is still, is still falling 30 years after its collapse. The United States has a long stretch of disunity ahead, and we have chosen this disorder. C.S. Lewis once said that hell is always locked from the inside, and people choose to live in hell in sin because they merely refuse to turn the lock, because they think sin will make them happy. We don't pursue sin because 
we want to be bad, we pursue it because we think it will, it's the good thing that we're looking for, but it's not. This is especially true in a marriage that is viewed as a temporary contract rather than a covenantal joining of two people into one flesh. If marriage is not a fully binding and joining of the flesh, then why bother? This is the same argument we have for the Eucharist. If it's just a symbol uh, and not the body and blood of Christ, then who cares? If marriage is just a symbol of the state, a legal contract, then who needs it? We want the sacred. And that's what sacraments are. And sacraments are the path to God, to uniting our wills, our will in our lives, and marriages to God. In marriage, a man submits to his wife and his wife submits to him. This is the least anti-woman idea in human history. Now, the woman at the well is one of the greatest stories of all the Gospels, of course. And if the woman at the well doesn't tell the story of an awakening by turning away from sexual sin, then I don't know what does. New life comes when the woman at the well rejects her personal sin and understands God's forgiveness. She realizes that men have used her as an object, and perhaps she has used men in the same way. Leaving the well, drunk on the living water, she knows that sex is a bad substitute for God in the temple of her heart. She is suddenly unshackled from her own past and the identity lies she has been led to believe. She's healed after meeting God. Coming to know God's will for her, her brokenness is suddenly made sense of. All is clear. She was blind, but now can see. The vice that she pursued, her weakness, is the very thing that purifies her in the end. The very thing. And it brings her into holiness. We are a world of individuals, many sad and depressed like the woman at the well, and we're just gasping for thirst, for something to quench our thirst and to taste this living water and return to a life of virtue, which will actually make us happy, not the sin. The apostles had a group of women in the center of church formation. Mary, the mother of God, and Mary Magdalene could not have more important roles in the founding of Christianity, and they still hold those roles. Then you have Martha, Joanna, Fotini. There are hundreds upon hundreds of women saints that are venerated, with buildings and churches and feast days named after them. There's no church without women, because without Mary, the mother of God, we have no incarnation. And without Mary Magdalene and the other women, no one is at the tomb on Easter morning when they first discover that Jesus is risen. To this day, it is more likely that women hear the voice of the living God really before men do. They're the ones at the cross when Jesus is dying. Uh, They're the ones who often lead men to this glorious mystery of who Jesus is. I mean, go to any parish and take a look around. Who is, who is leading the rosary before Mass, if you're, if you're in a church where they do the rosary? Um, who is managing the office and the records? Who is organizing faith formation? Who is prepping the altar for Mass? Who is leading the choir? Women are everywhere in the church doing all kinds of things, and their faith is amazing. They are valued far beyond what the secular world tells you in the Catholic Church because the secular powers don't want you to know this. And they certainly don't want people setting foot inside a Catholic parish lest they might become Catholic. And that is why the drumbeat of oppression and the Dark Ages talk never ceases. There's an old saying among lawyers, if the facts are on your side, pound the facts. If the law is on your side, pound the law. If neither is on your side, pound the table. 
that is the game being played whenever you hear that the, the church hates women. It is neither a fact nor a doctrine. It's a fabrication. It's pounding the table. Here's an excerpt from an article called, Does the Catholic Church Really Hate Women? Apparently, the justice of Christian morality offered a refreshing perspective to women in the ancient world accustomed to husbands who cheated and left at will. The number of women who converted to Christianity in the early centuries after Christ indicated that women were attracted to this new way of life. Indeed, they were among the most zealous converts and defenders of the faith. This is from a book, The Early Church, by Henry Chadwick. Christianity seems to have been especially successful among women. It was often through the wives that it penetrated the upper classes of society in the first instance. Christians believed in the equality of men and women before God and found in the New Testament commands that husbands should treat their wives with such consideration and love as Christ manifested for his church. Christian teaching about the sanctity of marriage offered a powerful safeguard to married women. Now, in light of this history, does anyone seriously believe that the Assyrian or Greek or Roman or Mesoamerican world respected women more than followers of Christ did? Can people argue that position with a straight face? Does anyone really think that the long era before Christ and further back before Abraham was a better time for women? Aside from Christianity, did any other religion take over the world in this way where women and marriage sounded the battle cry into the culture? The answer is a simple but loud no. And this is exactly why marriage is the hill to die on for Catholics. And I'm referring to sacramental marriage, not courthouse contractual marriage as deemed to be marriage by the U.S. government like a, like a grade A beef. Government marriage is as meaningful as an Apple end-user license agreement. It does nothing spiritual. It's only legal. And unjust laws do not change God. And frankly, why would anyone care what a government thinks of marriage? Every government in history falls into the abyss after a few hundred years. Is that really the arbiter of truth that we want to look at? Jeffersonian democracy will not outlast God, so whatever is decreed from Congress is utterly useless for eternal life, which is what the concerns of the body and soul we need to be aimed toward. That we're seeking God, not government approval. What is the point of religion after all? What is it? It's, it's eternal life. It's rebirth here and being raised to heaven hereafter. It's not getting a legal document. It's not winning power from a Supreme Court that will be a rusted out ruin, a weathered artifact, or a tourist stop in a hundred or a thousand years. The only marriage that matters is that which is eternal in the eyes of God in which two people become one flesh. All others are just certificates of participation and, quote, pieces of paper, as modern people like to call it. Marriage defined by government is meaningless because government is not God. Men today will say, when they're trying to avoid commitment, uh, why do I need a piece of paper to prove my love? And the answer is, you don't. You don't. The piece of paper isn't a sacrament. The sacrament is the sacrament. For this reason, whenever someone says, I don't need a piece of paper to prove I love you, they are right, because a government piece of paper not only proves nothing, it does nothing. Sacramental marriage changes two people into one. Two bodies become one, 
and two souls are bonded, which are only parted at death. As Jesus said, there is no marriage in heaven. In Mark 12, he said, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, in conclusion, you can hold this belief that the church hates women only if you choose to completely ignore the actual facts of pre-Christian society and the incredible spread and long-lasting nature of Christ's message and his church. Christian marriage has outlasted empires, it's outlasted fads, it's outlasted intellectual movements, it's, a, it's even outlasted cosmic models of the universe, and it will outlast all versions of government marriage we currently pretend are real. And after all of the current fads of open marriage and same-sex marriage and polygamy fail, as they have always failed, the value of sacramental marriage will still be with us. It is not by accident that the commandments are what they are. They were not invented at all. They were discovered. They are rediscoverable, and we'll discover them again of why we need them. They were not set forth to control people. They are actually what sets you free. Okay, thanks for listening. Um, We'll continue with this series. I have a few more to go. I know it's a long one, but thanks for listening. And uh, I appreciate everyone who uh, reaches out to me and gives me a little feedback now and then. So feel free to, to do that. Thanks.